Amen. Well, let's give praise to our Corona Victus, all right? Okay. He is the victor, and he wears the crown, amen? In all seasons, he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he wears the royal crown today. And we celebrate our Lord. Thank you for being here. Now, be seated, if you would, please, as we want to continue to celebrate our Lord God. And we celebrate him as we celebrate his grace. And what incredible passage we have this morning in Luke chapter 18 to celebrate the grace of our God. We come before God. We never want him to be fair. You never want God to give you what you deserve. I don't. What we want is what we don't deserve. And the gospel is that in Christ, what we don't deserve, we freely receive as a gift of his grace. And we want to focus on that this morning. But you know, we can only truly be recipients of God's grace. We can only truly celebrate God's grace if we know how self-focused our hearts really are. <laughs> then and only then can we truly celebrate His grace. Many years ago, I was driving my car, listening to a local Christian radio station. And a woman was on that station sharing her testimony. And I was so blessed to hear what God had done in her life as she was just giving testimony how out of a life of drugs and addiction, out of a life of abuse and self-abuse, that she'd come to know God's wonderful salvation. And she was so thankful for some people who looked beyond her externals and recognized that she was someone who God loved and for whom Jesus died. And they befriended her personally. And that began a journey that led to her salvation. I celebrated that. And then I listened as she said she was so grateful because the love of these people overcame a terrible experience that she had had a year or two earlier in a church. She had come to church not knowing what to do. She hadn't been in a church in ages and ages. She was dressed as she was usually dressed. She came in. Looking as she always looked. Lots of tats on her body. Lots of piercings in her body. During the welcome time, a lady came over to her and said, We are very glad you are here. 
her response to that was, I immediately felt like I was recognized as an outsider, that I didn't belong here, that I didn't fit in and that people were looking at me. And she came, continued to share how that hurt her deeply and, and the challenge she faced with that. And as I continued to listen to her testimony, it was very troubling to me to recognize she was talking about this church. This church. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever, listen carefully, that whoever that dear lady was who walked up to her and said, we are so glad that you are here and then walked back to her seat, I have no doubt that she was sincere and she meant that sincerely, but also what I have no doubt from the woman's own testimony on the radio station, all she were, heard was, we are so glad you are here. We are so glad you are here. And as I listened to that woman share a testimony, it was a reminder to me that we do need to be very, very careful that perhaps even unwittingly we don't communicate to others that they really aren't welcomed and embraced and loved. That they in any way let people feel like outsiders. It was a reminder to me also of my own deceptive heart in judging others based on externals. Passing judgment on people. I do not know their heart. I don't know their story. I just see what I see and I make a decision based on what is in them by what I see outside of them. And also, as I read this passage this week and prepared for this hour, I, I recognized how much the Lord wants people who go to houses of worship, how much he wants them to be very warned of the deception and the danger of self-righteousness, of believing in any way that we have any standing with God other than total and complete grace for us as sinners who are as lost as any. Now our text today is a story Jesus told and he told it, I think, to challenge us with a question, and here's the question, I'll use it as the theme. Are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in God? 
Trusting in ourselves or trusting in God. Now notice, once again, just like the previous story that Jesus told, as he told the story about the persistent widow and the unjust judge, he begins the story by giving us the key to the parable. He unlocks it for us before we even hear it. And he says, says this in verse 9. He also told this parable to some, not all, but to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, the, the terrible result is, yes, treating others with contempt. That's the fruit. But that's not the horrible root. The horrible root of treating other people as less deserving of respect than yourself is based in this. It is trusting in themselves that they were righteous. The word trust there is a word for faith. Having faith in whom? Having faith in themselves. <laughs> that they were righteous. It is the complete polar opposite from the gospel of a righteousness that comes from God through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what Jesus is talking about is much deeper than just thinking better of yourselves and others. It's going to the heart of the issue, the issue of a false gospel. A false salvation where a person, yes, in the house of God is actually trusting, has faith in himself or herself to make himself or herself righteous. So Jesus told that in this story for that purpose. So this sounds like church to me. How about you? Yeah. Now notice, the story is opened up this way. There's two men, two prayers, two answers, one principle. Two men, two prayers, two answers, one principle. Here's the two men, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, Jesus intentionally chose these two characters for this story to push the envelope. <laughs> he, he chose these two people for shock and awe effect. He chose the best and the highest, and he chose the worst and the lowest. The best and the highest of the day were the Pharisees. They were the best and the highest of that very religious society. As a matter of fact, a first century Jewish historian named Josephus said this about the Pharisees. Here was what he said about them. They are, quote, a body of Jews known for surpassing others in the observance of piety and in the exact interpretation of the laws. 
What were these men known for? They were known for their incredible piety, the observance of religion. And they knew and interpreted the law of God with great exactness. They were considered the best and the highest. Now, you may hear Pharisee, and in our day and age, we know what that means because of what we understand through our New Testaments about this. But if you had been in Jesus' day, Pharisees were people who were given the best seats. It was considered an honor to have a Pharisee in your house. You would bow to a Pharisee. You would recognize him and think that he was the best and highest of the community. Now, at the other end of the spectrum are the tax collectors who are the worst and the lowest. Now, be very clear here. A tax collector then, do not compare it, please, to an IRS agent today. It is not the same thing. Don't do that. The, the tax collectors in Jesus' day were traitors. They were Jewish people who were betraying their own people as they had hired themselves out to collect tax for the Romans. And they would collect the tax for the Romans and anything they could get above what was required they could keep for themselves. They are traitors. They are traitors to their people religiously, nationally, and personally. They have betrayed their people. They're despised. Absolutely despised. And we need to get this. You see, you'll miss this, you'll miss this message if you don't get this. I love what a great Scottish preacher of a hundred years ago, T.W. Manson said. And I wish I could do his Scottish accent because Scottish people, they just sound smarter than us. They really do. They just sound better. Here's what he said, quote, The tax collector is overwhelmed by the sense of his own unworthiness and rightly so. It is a great mistake to regard this tax collector as a decent sort of fellow who knew his own limitations and did not pretend to be better than he was. This tax collector was a rotter. <laughs> Love that. Rotter. I'm not sure. That doesn't, it's bad. I know that. He's a rotter. And he knew it. He knew it. He asked for God's mercy because mercy was the only thing that he dared ask for. Those are the two men that Jesus chose to compare. Now notice, these two men, though, found themselves in the same place. They found themselves in the house of God. How in the world the tax collector got there, we don't know. Pharisee, that was a hangout place for him. But they're both in the house of God. And notice, they've come at the hour of prayer. So this is either 9 o'clock in the morning, more likely 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
the hour of prayer, the hour of the sacrifice, and the call to prayer, the blaring of the trumpets, the singing of the choirs, the offering of the sacrifice. And people gathered all around the courts of that huge building, one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. And they pray. And their prayers are very fervent. Both of their prayers are very fervent, but both are very different. Over 150 years ago, there was a, a, a poet who wrote a little poem about these two men. We're, we're not sure of who the poet was, but here's what he wrote. Two men, two, went up to pray, or rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high where the other dares not even send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. Two prayers, very different. Notice, they're very different in their language and they're very different in where these prayers led them. One of these prayers is going to lead one to heaven. One of these prayers is going to lead one to hell. One to heaven, one to hell. Now listen to the Pharisee's prayer. Listen to the Pharisee's prayer. The best and the highest. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast Twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Now here, the Lord Jesus lets us listen to the Pharisee's prayer, if you want to call it a prayer. Now the prayer starts out okay. The prayer's okay for four words. God, I thank you. That's good. He starts out with gratitude, but quickly changes from gratitude to attitude. The Pharisee's prayer focuses on his sense of merit. Make sure you get that. He prays out of a sense of his own merit. And that's what he talks about. Notice a few things about his prayer. Did you notice this? He prays by himself. <laughs> you know, the word Pharisee, do you know what it means? It means a separated one. Someone who's holier than others and separated from sin. Well, this man, he's truly a separated one because it says he was standing by himself. By himself. He prays by himself. And notice he prays about himself. He prays about himself. And he lists some wonderful virtues. I mean, these are some 
wonderful virtues. This is impressive. I mean, this is way above average. I mean, he's, he's saying things that he truly is. And he can say, first of all, that who he is, he's very positively negative. Uh, there's things he's not. Uh, look at the list of what he doesn't do. He says, I'm not an extortioner like others here today. Unjust. I, I'm not an adulterer. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm not like this tax collector. He, he can list a lot of what he's not. He is truly separated from that which is evil. That, that's a good thing. I mean, this is, he, he has the standards. He, he would qualify in our most churches today as a deacon, maybe an elder. Oh, pulpit committee would be interested in him. But his heart comes out. He just can't resist. He can't resist. Out of the mouth, what? The heart speaks, what he says, or even as this tax collector. He prays by himself, he prays about himself, but notice this, brothers and sisters, in reality, he is, he's praying to himself. <laughs> he, he's listing all these positives about himself. Notice he says he fasts twice a week. Now, friends, be careful here. Make sure you understand, this isn't a diet. This, this isn't intermittent fasting, okay? You know, I practice that myself. You know, I fast from midnight till 6 a.m. every day. It's intermittent about that. Religiously. Now, listen, how often was a Jewish person required to fast? One day a year on the day of atonement Yom Kippur this man doesn't fast one day a year he fasts 104 days a year and he gives a tithe 10% of all he earned that's very commendable let me repeat that that's very commendable <laughs> But notice, the Pharisee is praying by himself. He's praying about himself. But in reality, he's praying to himself. Literally, he's praying to himself. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus to God. And literally, this is literal. It may be in some of your translations. It's literally this. The Pharisee standing prayed to himself that's the idea here literally he's praying to himself he's not really praying to god he's praying to himself notice you can tell that he's praying to himself because all he uses is i do you notice this i i i i i five times he uses the word i in this prayer he's I to the fifth power. He is literally praying idolatry. 
idolatry. And that's the reason his prayers don't get higher than his eyes. Because he's praying, really, to himself. It's all self-focused, self-affirming, self-righteous. It's all focused on the big eye, and so his prayer doesn't get higher than his eyes. Now, how different is the tax collector's prayer? Listen to the prayer of the tax collector. Listen to the prayer of this man. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, he's in the back of the outer courts of the temple. And standing back there, he won't even look up. Understand, the typical pose of prayer in that day was not this, it was this. He won't even lift up his eyes to the temple, let alone the God of the temple. Listen to him. You see his body language. He's standing afar off. He won't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he's continually, the word is, he's beating his breast. Why? Mia culpa, my fault, my fault. It's me, it's me, it's my heart that's the problem. And he's standing there, not even able to lift his head and beating his chest as an expression of his brokenness over his sinful heart. Listen to his heart language. You can see his body language. How about his heart language? Do you notice the order of his prayer? God merciful me, a sinner. He starts with God, not himself. God, my creator and judge. You are merciful. You are a God of mercy. That's your character. I'm coming to you for who you are and your character. Me, I am Individually, me, who you have created, I am a sinner. And notice this, notice this. It's literally, he doesn't say, I am a sinner. Literally, it is this. I am the sinner. I am the sinner. If there's anyone in this crowd who's a sinner, it's me. I am the sinner. I am the worst. That's language like Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. To me, the least likely came this grace. He's not comparing himself to anybody but God. He's not measuring himself by other people. He's just measuring himself to God. And he owns a sin. And the tax collector isn't proclaiming his merit. What's he doing? He's pleading for mercy. He's not proclaiming merit. He's pleading for mercy. Now this is very, very important, church. 
Some of you have been enjoying that little Sunday morning snooze. I understand. I'd probably drift off hearing my voice as well. And I don't judge you for it. Except when it looks like you're trying to settle in and get ready. That bothers me, okay? <laughs> if, if you're fighting it, I'm okay. If your head's bobbing around like you're going to get whiplash, that's okay. But when you're settling in, no, no. But now, wake up. He says in his prayer, Be merciful to me. And the word Luke, the author, human author here uses for merciful is only used five times in the New Testament. This is one of them. This is the first occasion. The tax collector in his prayer for mercy is focused on his need. He is saying this. Listen carefully. This is what the word is and then we'll make sure we understand it. Here is his prayer literally. God be propitiated to me, the sinner. God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. What does propitiation mean? What does this word that Luke used so carefully, what does it mean? What is a propitiation? Here it is. Listen. Propitiation means a sacrifice that brings peace with God. That's what it means. It is a sacrifice that brings peace with God. So his prayer is, God, be propitiated. Be at peace with me on the basis of this sacrifice that's being offered right now. You see, this was founded in the law of the Old Testament. Friends, do you know how many chapters there are in the Old Testament? In the first five books of the Old Testament, do you know how many chapters are devoted entirely to how an unholy sinner is to approach a holy God? Fifty chapters. Fifty chapters that told how, in the Old Covenant, people who knew they were sinners were to approach a sinless God. But it all came down to this. The only way you could approach a wholly offended God was to come with a sacrifice of blood. Because God had said to the people of Israel... Before they were brought out of the land of Egypt, he said this, I have given the blood to you, the blood of the sacrifice, because the life is in the blood. I have given it to you for the atonement of your sins. And God said, put blood over your thresholds. And when I see the blood, what did he promise? I will pass over you. That's where the idea of the Jewish Passover comes from. That God passed through Egypt in judgment that night. But every home that had blood over the threshold had offered the lamb as sacrifice and was behind that door 
covered in blood, God would pass over. That was the basis of the sacrificial system. Now, one day a year, Yom Kippur, the day of the covering, the priest would go in and he would offer the blood of a goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. The high priest could only go in one day a year on this day. And when he went in, he approached the ark, the ark of the covenant. And on top of the ark of the covenant was a golden lid. And from that golden lid came up two angels that spread their wings out over the top of that lid, of that ark. Inside of the ark were a few things, but one was the law. The law that had been broken. A broken law and holy God above that. It was considered to be his seat, his throne with his people. But one day a year, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood on that golden seat. It was called the mercy seat. And God said, when I see that blood, I will not judge my people Israel for their sins. I will pass over again. That was repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated throughout the Jewish history for over 1,400 years until this time when Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And he is the king, but he's not headed to be crowned by a royal crown. He's headed to be crowned with thorns. And crowned with thorns, he is coming not as the king, but as the Lamb of God. And he himself will crawl up on the altar of that cross. And on the cross, he will accept the punishment of God for sinners. And he will make a complete satisfaction of justice. And he will be the substitute for all sinners. He will do what is enough to take away the sin of the world. And the gospel is when a person knowing their sin understanding their sin, recognizing there's nothing that they can do when they will simply by faith, looking to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and say, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. They will be saved. They're forgiven. They are counted righteous. They are declared not guilty. This is how the Apostle Paul described it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his what? Grace. As a what? Merit? Gift. How? 
through the redemption, through the purchase that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice. Literally, God put him forth as the one and final mercy seat. And he made the perfect and final sacrifice. And all who come to God through simple faith in Him are declared not guilty. Do you hear this man's prayer? God, I can't do it. You have to do it. You have to undertake for me. You, please, you take this lamb in my place. And Lord, you please be at peace with me based on this sacrifice that you have ordained. That was this man's prayer. And I wonder, is that your prayer? Have you ever come to God that way? With only one hope that a holy God has poured out his holy justice on the holy son of his love, Jesus. And Jesus in his love has taken your place as your lamb. And if you will trust in him alone, then a free gift is offered to you, eternal salvation. Have you come to God that way? And is your only hope when you stand before God, if you were to stand before Him today, would your only hope be, God, I have no claim on you other than the one at your right hand who bears in His body the marks of Calvary, the Lamb who died for sinners like me. That's my hope, Lord Jesus. And my friend, on that basis, you are given the answer, not guilty. <laughs> Look at the answer and we come to our time of communion. I tell you, what did God say? What did Jesus say about this tax collector who had wasted his whole life? He had nothing to offer. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. You know what that word justified means? It means declared not guilty. Why? He was trusting in the Lamb in His place. And His only claim and hope was for God to be merciful. And God granted him forgiveness on the basis of his faith alone in the Lamb of God. He went down to his house, not guilty. But what about the tax collector? Rather than the other, what does that mean? This best of the best, this religious man, this good man, this virtuous man, who yet was trusting in his merit, he went home still guilty. Why? He got what he asked for. 
What, what did the Pharisee ask for? Nothing. He didn't think he needed anything. He didn't ask for mercy, so guess what he didn't get? Mercy. He got just what he asked for. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said of this Pharisee, he was too good to be saved. You can't be saved until you're lost. And the second most glorious thing that can ever happen to you is to get lost. Because then you're not far from the kingdom of God. Because when you get lost... You'll stop telling God all you've done for Him. You'll stop trusting in what you've put in the offering or your church membership or some prayer that you prayed. You'll stop trusting in communion or baptism. You'll stop trusting in the fact that you do this or that. And when you get lost, you will recognize my only hope is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and His mercy. And then... That's the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. Because you'll be saved on the basis of that faith. Here's the principle. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. You've got to become like a little child. Verse 17. <laughs> I love this. This is on Hazel's special day. Bringing the infants to him oh don't do that he's busy <laughs> no let the little children come to me don't you dare think that little children can't come to Jesus they may have childlike faith but it's true faith and nobody will be saved until they have childlike faith and trust in Jesus notice I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. A haughty faith in your merit will absolutely exclude you from the kingdom. A haughty faith that you have earned something will exclude you from the kingdom. But a humble faith in God's mercy will absolutely include you in the kingdom. And that's how outsiders become insiders. Praise God. We're going to receive communion. You should have received the juice, the wafer. But if not, I think we have men. If you've got some, just let the men know that you need that. I'm going to ask some of the men. If we don't have one, raise your hand. We'll make sure that everybody has able to have that. hope you all got it as you came in. Many years ago, many years ago, a man came to me right here. He was sitting way, 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 way back there in the back. He had on a black suit, black shirt, black tie. Big man. Swarthy complexion. Jet black hair. Had a hand as big as a skillet. He came down afterward. He took me by the hand. And I'm not trying to mock. This is how he said it. He said, Preacher, 
you really believe what you just said to me? I said, what? That Jesus can forgive you of anything? I said, absolutely, sir. If you repent, he will forgive you. He said, well, let's say that you'd killed somebody. Could God forgive you that? I looked at him. I said, sir, Jesus Christ died to forgive all sins. And he can wash away all sins. He will for those who repent and believe in him alone. He looked at me and said, Preacher, say you'd killed three men and you were sorry for two of them. (laughs) Could God forgive you? Unique moment, wouldn't you say? Now I told him, I've looked right in his eye, right here. I said, Sir, you can only be saved if you repent of your sin your sin and come completely and totally trusting in Jesus to forgive you all of your sin. You can be born again, but you must repent. The man looked at me and said, Preacher, you're all right. And he walked out. I don't know if the man has ever come to faith, true faith or not, but I want to tell you something. Whether it's lying, extortion, cheating, disobedient to parents, adultery, thievery, kidnap, murder, terrorism. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has the power to cleanse from all sin and make you new. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Let's bow our heads. Dear friend, we are about to take communion, which is a reminder of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And it reminds us of the old rugged cross. And dear friend, please, right now, come to Jesus. Right now. Pray, not your merit, pray for mercy. Whatever it is, pray to Christ who died for sin and sinners. Oh, friend, none will be turned away who comes pleading for mercy. And I pray that you will come now from your very heart. And I pray before you leave this building this morning, you'd come and talk to me or one of the other pastors so we can show you those certain promises in God's Word that He will save to the uttermost those who come to Him by faith.